Hi, I'm Trip. I spent the first part of the 21st century as a film snob, rejecting any sort of mainstream comedy. And I'm Ross. I'm slowly, film by film, taking Trip through the films he sadly dismissed or smartly avoided until now. Welcome to A Trip Through Comedy, a podcast examining studio comedies from around the turn of the century. Trip, our exit today has us looking at two small-town comedies that take place in the northwest part of the United States. First is Mumford, written and directed by Lawrence Kasdan. The second is Mystery Alaska, written by David E. Kelly and Sean O'Byrne, and directed by Jay Roach. Mumford has us following an alleged psychiatrist in the small town of Mumford as he attempts to solve the problems of an eclectic group of locals. Mystery Alaska looks at a small town in Alaska passionate about hockey, gets the chance of a lifetime to take on the New York Rangers. So we have an inspirational sports movie and a movie about a man who aspires to be a real psychiatrist. Trip, do you remember anything about either of these movies when they came out in 1999? Not really. Mystery Alaska was sort of in my vein. I knew that it was a hockey something. Um, Mumford, I think I said last week, I really did not remember much at all of. And so I really went into both of these movies pretty blind, not really knowing um, what to expect of either of them. Yeah, I mean, both of these were movies that did not do supremely well at the box office, so it's not Mm -mm. surprising that you may not have (laughs) remembered it. I would say it seems like Mystery Alaska has gained more of a following over the years. I think it's become this kind of more cult, inspirational sports movie that people like. Mumford, not so much. I was with you. I had had never heard about this movie until it actually... Until we were doing this for this podcast, I had no idea what the, to make of this. No, no, me neither. And so, um, should we start with Mumford Ross? Yeah, Trip. Okay. Can you possibly describe the plot of the movie Mumford? Yeah. So, and I should start. I went into this movie not knowing anything about this movie, and it goes in some wild places. And so, if for whatever reason you think you might want to see this movie, pause now, go watch it, and then come back. Because the less you know about this movie, I think the wilder the ride would be. That said... I think your life is complete without seeing Mumford, and so therefore you might just want to go along the ride of me trying to explain this movie to you all. But here we go. Dr. Mumford has been in the town of Mumford for about four months and has a burgeoning practice treating several of the local townspeople. His therapy stylings are different from the others, but he seems to be doing some good work with his patients. These include Nessa, a local high schooler who keeps getting into trouble, Henry, the town pharmacist with some intense sexual fantasies, and Althea, a housewife with a shopping and hoarding problem. Two patients, however, seem to have a personal connection to him. There's Skip, the young billionaire who essentially funds the town, but is lonely and unable to find any real connection with anyone. And then Sophie, a woman suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome a year after her divorce. However, Mumford is hiding a secret of his own. He is not actually a psychiatrist. In fact, he is a former IRS investigator who has fled his former life to make a fresh start. He was suffering from drug addiction and while in his third rehab stint, came up with the idea to pretend to be a psychiatrist because he is, quote unquote, a good listener. His success and the fact that he turned away the local criminal defense lawyer leads the two other therapists in town to start questioning his credentials. But his truth is finally revealed due to an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, which details his disappearance and asks for information on him. 
With his secret exposed, he is free to finally express his love for Sophie, who loves him as well. He is put on trial and pleads guilty to his crimes. But we see that he has done real work with the community, and his patients are all now in healthier places thanks to him. So, Ross, did you find this movie to be enjoyable, or do you need to lay down on my couch and go through some things here? I kept trying not to laugh so hysterically during points of this thing. Because I agree with you. This is a truly insane movie. Like, there, there is a part of this movie where it takes a turn, where it gets revealed, the, the kind of twist. Mm-hmm. And the first part of this movie, you're going around and you're like, okay, he seems like, okay, this is local town. Like, we're going to just watch this movie about the psychiatrist and his eccentric patients. And, you know, isn't that nice? And yeah, he does seem to take some very loose terms to the, you know, like, ethics of a <laughs> of a psychiatrist since he seems to be freely talking about his patients oh, with, like, oh, yeah. other people. We didn't mention that, that he just goes around and tells everybody everyone else's problems. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, just saw so-and-so, you know, got yeah. a real hoarding problem here. <laughs> yeah, which is, like, immediate red flag. But you're like, all right, whatever, this is this quirky, you know, small town, whatever. And then <laughs> he reveals to Jason Lee his backstory. And I literally just was watching this movie going, what in God's name is going on here? <laughs> like, this is the most insane thing I've ever heard in my life. It is, and again, we gave like, you know, Trip just described a small bit of the entire thing of his life oh, that oh, he goes into. We didn't get into the the black and white recreations of the sexual fantasies. Oh, well, that too. Or or the sex robot um, oh, yeah. subplot or that, all sorts of fun stuff that we can we can get into. I mean, this movie is insane. It is truly, it is one of the more insane movies. I Just to be clear, we have done worse movies on this podcast, but this is one of the more insane ones. And it has a cast that is chock full of very talented people who I all don't think are doing bad work. It's the script is so insane that it prevents you from being like, I, I can't, I can't deal with this movie. Like, it's wild. His clients are played by Hope Davis and Jason Lee and Zoe Deschanel and Mary McDonald and Pruitt Taylor Vince, David Pamer. Um, and then you also get, you know, Alfie Woodard in here. We get Martin Short, Jane Adams, Dana Ivey, Kevin Tighe, Ted Danson pops up. Um, young Jason Ritter? Baby Jason Ritter and baby Elizabeth Moss are both yeah. in here. Um, Simon Helberg from The Big Bang Theory has a really small cameo in here. Um, Holt McElhaney, who we saw last week in Three Kings, uh, pops yeah. up in the flashbacks. And because Unsolved Mysteries plays a part, did you notice Robert Stack actually gets his own title card as an ensemble member in, <laughs> in this movie? Because as he why not? should. As I mean, he this, should. This is an amazing, an amazing ensemble um, of, of actors. And you look at the poster and it's all of them. And it's like, man, I want to go into this small town. Like, this this looks like a lot of fun. And the movie is almost at its best when it just 
explores all of these people, right? Almost even when it gets out of the psychiatrist's office and it's just him wandering around town because that's why you make a small town movie is because you can get this ensemble of weird, quirky people and you can get all these great actors and like, let's just explore, like, what are the weird things going on in this town, right? Like, that's what makes these sort of movies charming. And so you do, when you get these great scenes with these actors, Alfred Woodard is so charming as like the um, bakery owner here. Um, Zoe Deschanel as like the rebellious quote unquote teenager doing her thing, or even like Ted Danson as the horrible stepdad. And that's what Lawrence Kasdan is good at, at making these sort of ensemble films. But then for some reason, it's layered on with this ridiculous plot of the psychiatrist. Is it really a psychiatrist? And it, it takes away something well, the interesting thing is, which is, it connects to this, right, is it, at some point he has this conversation with Jane Adams and David Paymer, and we'll talk about that a little later at this lunch. There's a point where he gets asked, what is it that your style is, right? Like, what do you do? But he kind of comes up with, like, a very interesting answer of, like, I think these people are all broken, and it's not, by the time they've reached the point of trying to get to me, there's not much I can do. I can only just kind of hope that maybe they figure this out kind of idea. Mm-hmm. And there is something, you know, obviously he's saying that because obviously he has no ability to do anything. He is not a psychiatrist. Yeah. But there's something to the idea of, like, he is really helping these people figure out for themselves how to finally, you know, figure these things out. And we should also mention, because we haven't mentioned this, uh, Lauren Dean is who plays Mumford. We, mm-hmm. I, I would like to also clarify this, because if you were listening to that description, you were like, hey, his name is Mumford, and he lives in the town of Mumford. And if you're thinking, does this come up in this movie? Oh, it does. <laughs> it yes. does. And yes. the answer is, he came up with the name before moving to Mumford. He took the name of a childhood friend of his who died at the age of six in a horrible car accident with his parents. Because as an IRS investigator, he knows it's easy to steal that, that information then from, I from just, dead again, children. Everything about his backstory is insane. It is a truly insane thing of this movie. Because he noticed then, oh, there's a town called Bumford. I should just go there because (laughs) it's my new name. Because nothing makes you more conspicuous than having the name of the small town that you're in. Yes, it's totally totally fine. Um, He's probably best. He was the lead uh, as Billy Bathgate. And by this point had done you know, a couple of things. He had, he was the year before an enemy of the state with Jason Lee. He had done starstruck the year before. He also had done 1492. He'd done Apollo 13. He did Rosewood. He did Gattaca. He had done some of these movies, but I don't think he had had like a, a another kind of like full leading role like he had in Billy Bathgate. So this was kind of like a big thing for him. It's a tough part because again, like the, it's the script is just so insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to lie. He tells his backstory. I don't believe that this individual is that person. I'm sorry. There's nothing like, no, that makes you think that, that. Like, in order to be a good con artist, you need to be almost overly charming. And he doesn't have a whole lot of charm. You sort of understand why he never really became a leading man or like a major star off of this or some of the other stuff. He gets lost in all of the quirkiness of the other actors. Um, I do wonder if a more charming actor could have maybe sold some of the wackiness of this a little better and made it a little more believable. 
Yeah, I think that I, I agree with you. I mean, look, if you want to compare it to another con movie that will come out a couple of years later, right? Leonardo DiCaprio, right? In Catch Me If yeah. You Can. Mm-hmm. DiCaprio plays a con artist. It is Frank Abagnale Jr. And now, to be fair, this is not fair to Lauren Dean. Very few people have the charisma and the movie star ability of Leonardo DiCaprio. No. But in a Steven Spielberg movie. In a Steven Spielberg movie. Another yes. thing that's mm-hmm. not helping him here in this comparison. But. I think why DiCaprio works is that charm, right? He has the ability, and it seems like the confidence of walking mm-hmm. into any room in any situation, even if when you're actually listening to him, you're like, oh, it's pretty clear that this guy has no idea what he's talking about. That doctor scene in Catch Me If You Can, where he's just like, do you concur, right? He's just like, mm-hmm. he has no idea what to do. It, there's there's interesting things of watching this movie, and we've talked about this, where it's like, there should have been like 10,000 red flags to every single one of these people. That like, mm-hmm. this guy is not, something is off here. Yeah. You know, he flat out throws people out early, like from their sessions. He seems to not want to deal with other people. It's like, you can't, you don't do that. <laughs> like, and, the, and the movie never talks down to this small town community. No. Like, these are all intelligent, capable people people it's not like he's walked into a town full of hicks and look at how he can you know con them all you know harold hill style yeah yeah and you know it's it's weird because lawrence caston obviously a big writer director in hollywood right most people probably know his his 80s stuff which are really big right he writes you know he's one of the writers on probably a lot of people know him in general for star wars right mm-hmm. he you know co- and indiana know, jones with, yeah and indiana jones yeah empire strikes back he works on he works on a bit of return of the jedi he's worked on recent ones too mm-hmm. um and obviously he does in the 80s also body heat and the big chill two huge movies his mm-hmm. 90s are a little bit rougher right it's not the same he does grand canyon which i think did like it depends on who you talk to on that one he does the bodyguard he does wyatt earp uh he directs french kiss he doesn't write it but this kind of is like we're almost at the end of lawrence cast in directing and it's mainly because the next movie he directs i think basically kills his directing career which is Dreamcatcher, a a movie we will not cover on this podcast because it is not an intentional comedy it definitely seems like this is, you know, it doesn't do well financially. This is where his own writing fails him, I think. It is. And because you sort of missed in there, too, that, like, he's written a lot of these sorts of movies. And they've been, he gets an Oscar nomination for writing Grand Canyon. He gets an Oscar nomination for writing The Accidental Tourist, um, which has a sort of similar vibe to this. You know, The Big Chill is nominated for Best Picture. He has gotten a whole lot of acclaim for a lot of these sorts of types of movies that this just feels like making a Lawrence Kasdan movie, but having to add on this weird layer on top of it, you know, whereas again, like a Grand Canyon or like an accidental tourist, or even like a big chill, just let us sit with these characters. Just let us explore them. That's what's wonderful about this sort of movie. Why do we need to layer on all of these other weird things? You look at something like the big chill, which has a big cast mm-hmm. uh, and, and a very talented cast, by the mm-hmm. way, and he's able to balance all of these people and these kind of numerous storylines as they're all all these people's lives are intersecting again. It just seems like like the twist and all of that is so burdensome on this movie. It yeah. takes you so out of it 
that it becomes so hard to kind of do it. But I agree with you. I think where this movie does succeed is when you spend these times with these very talented character actors yeah. all living their lives here. So who who do you want to highlight then, Ross? Who stood out to you from this uh, from this ensemble here? Oh man, when you mentioned Alfred Woodard, I really regretted maybe not choosing her because I do think she's really great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually went with uh, Mary McDonald, who is this housewife is married to Ted Danson, who mm-hmm. we should state uh, use more Ted Danson in your movies. Don't yeah. just have him come in for one scene. Ted Danson, oh, National something... Treasure Ted Danson. Na- he oh, is a National, National Treasure, Treasure Ted Danson. There we go. Um, although I think it's used very, because he is the husband who, the thing is that he goes into the city like during the yes. weekdays and just comes home on the weekends. And I think there's something very intentional about letting someone of Ted Danson's stature sort of fill in that part. He's also using the darker part of his charm, right? Mm. He's he's a jerk. He's a real yeah. jerk in this movie. But he is not my best supporting turd. It is Mary McDonald, who plays this housewife who's married to him and has a shopping slash hoarding addiction. Her children mm. are played by Jason Ritter and Elizabeth Moss. She seems to be frustrated. And I think the emotional arc of her character and of trying to find herself again, uh, kind of, it, it turns out that really all of this is because she feels like she is just some part of some collection. And mm-hmm. so she is trying to find this other collection. She's really has some sweet moments and you care about her character. Mm-hmm. You care that this seems to be going in her kind of finale. We haven't mentioned this. It seems that everyone's solution just seems to be getting a relationship. Yeah. That's what it seems to be. He, he's almost more matchmaker than he is yes. psychiatrist here. Yes. I think that's the answer. Just you know, just get get to a relationship. She ends up with the local pharmacist who has, again, which is Pruitt Taylor Vince, who has these very 1940s black and white style sexual fantasies uh, yes. out of a film noir. The movie starts with one of them, too. Yes. So, like, the movie starts and the first thing confused. you see is, is Holt McElhaney, like, getting out of a car. And there's this Billy Wilder-esque film noir narration um, about him and he has to rent it rent an apartment and the landlady's coming on to him and like it's shot weird shots of cleavage and then the next fantasy involves the girl's teenage daughter in a cheerleading outfit and it's all very bizarre and then he hooks the two of them together but then mary mcdonald just becomes part of his fantasies and she becomes like the third string in the fantasies. Like, it's not like she's replaced all of them. It's like, well, now I got the landlady and the cheerleader and Mary McDonald in sexy nurse. Outfit. But now like, he's in the, he, the key thing is also he's himself. Yes. He can yes. be himself in the fantasy, but she's still background. Like she's still like the third, the third. Well, one I think she's going to come to the forefront, but yes, it's, it's a very, Again, we keep describing these things, and I keep being like, if you have never seen this movie, you're sitting here probably. It is so weird. What is going on here? But yes, I do think she is very good, and I think almost, I, I more I thought about it, I was like, Alfred Woodard I thought was too big of a part, and I thought that's why maybe I decided not to. But uh, yeah, Mary McDonald, I think she's great. What about you, Trip? Who would you like to highlight? Alfred Woodard, also really good in a completely thankless part. Like, yes. her part does yes. does nothing that she um, really cast aside, but she brings such such warmth. Um, well, now you're going to shame me, because maybe I picked someone who also is a little bit uh, too, too big of a part. Um, but I went with Jason Lee. I think he is really 
really great in this in this movie. He is sort of the he's the young billionaire, right? He says he's yes. worth like three, three billion billion dollars by doing something. That's never clear, but he's sort of one of those, you know, late nineties dot com bros. He seems to or, make processors or something like. I think it's like something like that. Yeah. But he also funds half the town because maybe they work at his factory, maybe not. That's not really clear. But he, um, Jason Lee, is an actor who could sort of run hot and cold for me. I think he's a fun presence, but I don't know if I would always call him like a great actor. But they give him a lot of heavy lifting in this movie, and I think he's really charming and really affecting throughout this whole movie that their relationship he and Mumford is is a nice relationship I think he brings out some of the best in Lauren Dean um I found him funny I found him charming he ends up in this nice relationship I guess with Alfre Woodard it's a little creepy at first because he starts out like well she doesn't know that she's in love with me yet but she will plays itself out in a nice Lawrence Kasdan way. And so um, I really enjoyed whenever he's on screen. Um, he's also going to get my my funniest moment uh, citation in a second. So I think he maybe is the funniest one in the movie also. So um, Jason Lee, I think, really, really great in this movie. I am unabashedly a Jason Lee fan. Mm-hmm. At this point now in his career, he's probably best known for popping up in Kevin Smith movies. He's- yeah, I don't want to say anything about this. I think he's a great sort of yeah. presence, but I, I don't think Oscar-caliber actor Jason Lee is not no. sort of always what I think about with him. And I think that he he is giving more of a performance in this movie than perhaps a lot of other stuff has asked of him, especially to this point. What he is really good at usually is snark, but with like a charm. Yep. Like, he is absolutely a jerk at points. And you could see it in Mallrats. You could see it, you know, Chasing Amy. You could see it in Dogma. I mean, he's a devil. But he's really good at doing these sorts of things while you're still kind of like, I don't know, but that guy, I still like him, right? Yeah. And he'll be in mm. Almost Famous the next year, right? Where he is. He's really good really, at Almost Famous. Like, really good at I think this and Almost Famous are sort of him playing that type of role, but there's a little more meat on the bones, maybe, in Lawrence Kasdan and. Cameron Crowe's scripts than there is in, you know, a Mallrats per se. And so it, it's letting him sort of deepen his persona. You know? I think because those are more broader comedy. Like when you have yeah. like Kevin Smith, those are not to say that the Kevin Smith, especially something like Chasing Amy, where it's, tr- or even Dogma, which is grappling with some of these other things. Um, but yes, Cameron Crowe and, Lar- and Lawrence Kasdan are screenwriters that are writing and write parts for him that have more. You yes. Know, yes, meat on the bone for sure. We are both pro Jason Lee, Ross. Yes, this is a I, pro I, I Jason make that Lee clear. podcast. Yes, yes, there we go. Yes, um, uh, but I'll just carry that right into funniest because I think the yes. funniest moment. So Jason Lee is this lonely billionaire, right? And so he um, <laughs> confesses to Mumford that his sort of pet project, he has nothing else to do, is that he is making these very realistic sex doll robots i guess it's like part stepford wives part lars and the real girl part like West ex machina, it, it sort of, yes. ex machina. <laughs> yeah it's sort of all together and so there's two really funny scenes revolving around this i picked when jason lee is first describing the doll to mumford and you can just see him him along with us trying to process exactly what he is talking about and it's so weird and bizarre but again it's that jason lee charm that like man this sounds wrong but 
I just like you so much, dude, that like, sure, go ahead with this. And I think Mumford at one point says, well, you know, someone is going to make these down the road. So why not just you? Like, then there is also a scene where you actually go into the robot lab that is also fairly funny just because he has these weird pieces (laughs) in there. And at, at one point, Mumford is trying to say something serious, but like the bottom half of a robot doll won't stop gyrating behind him. That is an image that will live in my brain, (laughs) whether I want it it to or not. (laughs) it, It is so like the, the, weird comedic version of like those Westworld labs that Jeffrey Wright was always in. And so again, the Jason Lee charm sort of carried it, but both those scenes did make me laugh uh, quite a bit. Is there something you want to, to highlight there? Yeah. So I talked a little bit about at some point, these two psychiatrists who are played or psychiatrists and psychologists uh, who are played by David Paymer and Jane Adams start questioning, you know, Mumford's credibility. And so they take him out to lunch under the guise of, hey, you're new to town as a professional courtesy, we'd like to welcome you. And they start questioning him about his credentials. And it just turns into every person he has to, oh, they died. And they died in some horrible way. And it just like, it is. the more it kept going on, like I just started laughing to the third time where I think it was like, oh, who is your proctor? Like I know all of them. And he says a name and Jane Adams just gets very silent and goes, you know, that hang gliding accident. <laughs> just like, of course, like somehow oh he's God. picked the one person who died also. Like it was like, just a keep going of like, you know, this grim, you know, thing. And I was just like, okay, this this just got me. It, it made me laugh. Jane Adams also is really funny in this movie. And like, no one plays that like pent up um, sort of professional woman quite like she does. And um, she's really funny in that scene. We also um, did mention, by the way, that the two of them, David Paper and Jade Adams, we find out at some point are in a romantic relationship with each other. Yes, yeah. And then he breaks up with her over this because he mm-hmm. thinks that Mumford's actually really good and she's still very questioning him. And then we also find out that David Paper is married and is actually cheating on his wife <laughs> with Jade Adams. Like, yeah. this thing goes like, again, this movie is insane. <laughs> Like, well, because so these things. these small towns have all these little twists and oh turns, Ross, you know. So much, um, so much. But Trip, is there something that you found not to be funny? Oh, this pa- this pains me, Ross. This you're going to really start an internet. You're, you're feeding into oh, the internet, Trip, I am right fe- now. feeding into the internet. Look, this ensemble is all really good. I think there is one person in this movie who stands out a little bit. And it is the wonderful, the amazing Martin Short. Um, I just, he plays the criminal defense lawyer in the movie. I love Martin Short. I think he is a wonderful performer. He just, he doesn't fit in with the rest of this movie. He is doing a sort of sketch comedy character, whereas no one else really is. And so there was that horrible article last year about how Martin Short is not funny. And that is a lie. It is horrible. Um, like he is wonderful. I think he just, he doesn't fit into the rest of the movie here. And he bugged me whenever he came, he came on screen. So as much as I, I hate to to say it, Martin Short, I think just my unfunniest here. I, I mean, he didn't bother me. I think it's fine. I think it was, I do agree with you that he does seem to be a bit in a different movie. I actually Mm. wish he was more over the top, like in some respects, like I wish he was like his character from that SNL sketch with the, uh, with the synchronized swimming where he's just chained smoking it's like their agent it's just like just like all right so then i got them i'll go like i actually kind of wish he went more over the top like mm-hmm. fun barn short 
it didn't bother me also because he's just not in it enough. He's yeah. not. Um, he comes in for like a couple scenes, and everyone's general opinion is this guy's a jerk. <laughs> like, I mean, I get why he got kicked out. I mean, but like, you know, I don't think he's used to the best of his abilities that Mark no. Short has. He is a truly wonderful actor and mm-hmm. such a great comedic presence. This movie, I would say, like Ted Danson, doesn't kind of like he's there just to like sprinkle and not really do a lot. Um, I changed mine okay. <laughs> mid recording here for okay. Unfunniest. The the stuff with Zoe Deschanel is at times works, but some of this stuff with like him, like she should say, comes on to him. She's forced to be his patient because she's been getting in trouble in high school, right? So the yes. school says like you have to go see her, and it's Zoe Deschanel doing, you know. 2000 Zoe Deschanel high school performance, right? Like, it's, yes. it's this exact same vein as her in Almost Famous, or her, she has a bit on Frasier um, around this time as kind of the too wise for her age, wise cracking, overly mature high schooler. Yeah, but Almost Famous makes a lot more sense with Zoe Deschanel's like personality yeah. than I think mm. this, where it's like she's like trying to be rebellious, but in a way where you're like, this doesn't, it's weird. And she has these fascination with magazines. She clearly has a lot of other issues. It's never really also described like some of these other people you get what's going on here, right? We get a sense of mm-hmm. like, oh, here's the things in their lives that are mm-hmm. leading to this. She's the one patient who we really get almost nothing. Like yeah. there's no idea of what her home life is like. But there's also moments where she starts kind of like coming on to Mumford or starts talking about where I'm like, this is just this doesn't this is weird and I don't like it. It just doesn't work and for me. Because he's not a real psychiatrist, he sort of plays into it. Like he's sort of flattered by it, you know? Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it doesn't work. You know, I agree with you. When you look at something like Almost Famous, again, not fair to compare this to Almost Famous, a fantastic movie that is mm-hmm. amazing. But Zoe Deschanel's rebelliousness in that is a little different, right? Is that she likes rock music. She wants to see the world. She wants to... Yeah. It's rebellious to her mother, but not rebellious, like, in some respects, like what this movie's trying to do. It feels fake. It feels very put on by her in a way that I just don't think fully mm-hmm. works. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I I included that in it. A, a, an actress who I do enjoy, by the way. I do enjoy Zoe Deschanel in many things. Yeah. So Trip, we've come to the part of the show. People have heard us talk probably more than we needed to on the movie Mumford. But <laughs> it is now time to hear what critics and the fine and good users of Letterboxd think of this movie. So Trip, what do you think the average Rotten Tomato score is for this movie, Mumford? Oh boy. Um, I, I don't know. I'm going to say it's like, uh, let's just say it's a 50%. I really don't know where it falls. Get in your answers now, people. You are close. You are close. You're smidge too low. It is 58%. So it is still wrong. So almost fresh though. So yeah, almost fresh. Yeah. Uh, I will say this just to highlight two reviews that feel very differently than us about this movie. Uh, Owen Glamberman writing for Entertainment Weekly, supposedly gave this movie an A-. minus. A-? minus. Yes. Beneath its merry comic veneer, Mumford is really an arresting puzzle. Who is Mumford, and will he get away with being the most deceptive and unethical shrink this side of Hannibal Lecter? Now, I would like to clarify. <laughs> uh, if you've never seen Silence of the Lambs, uh, there's a there's a big difference between Mumford 
and Hannibal Lecter. Hannibal yeah. Lecter, you know, noted cannibal who eats uh, clients that he finds to be rude and you know does you know does his patients. At the yeah, rate this movie was going, though, Ross, if you had told me that there was going to be some cannibalism, sure. Like, yeah. So just just to be clear, also, once again, I would like to clarify, he is not a real shrink. Please, yeah. everyone, stop treating yes. him like he's a real shrink in this movie. Uh, I would recommend, by the way, if you have not read the Wikipedia summary of this movie, please do, because at no point does it ever acknowledge the fact, I think, that he is not a real doctor, which is a big oh. problem with this. Uh, Roger Ebert, also a big fan of this movie. He gave it three and a half out of four stars. What? Yeah, he, he, he likes this, this movie as well. He said, an expression of Kasdan's humanist longings, his wish that people would listen better and value one another more. It is the strangest thing how this movie sneaks up and makes you feel a little better about yourself. Now, here's where I will say, while I disagree that this movie is a three and a half out of four stars here, I think Ebert's not wrong in the sense of, I think Lawrence Kasdan really does believe that part of the reason this guy is effective is he mm-hmm. just listens when other people don't, and really listens. And I think that is something yeah. that is at the core of this movie. I don't disagree with him there. But so, and this is what sort of baffled <laughs> me about it, Ross. Like, is the movie just saying that, like, you don't need therapists, you just need someone to listen to you? Like, th- at the end of the movie, I was like, is the message I'm getting that psychiatrists are just, like, full of baloney and we should not go to therapy? Because yeah, Owen Gleiberman makes this comment, that, like, literally yeah. the thing right after I read it, his, uh-huh. th- this was at the end of his review. He says, the film views therapists as ghost doctors who essentially work by destigmatizing people's secrets. It turns the tricks of psychology into duplicitous high play yeah <laughs> like, i mean and yeah <laughs> only to the point that like so the movie ends right is the last scene him in that police car be taken to prison right but so the guard is like so are you the shrink can i tell you about my problems and then he's like i'm not a real shrink but sure you could tell me about the problems and then it cuts to black and lawrence kasdan the king of the needle drops right the big chill one of the great movie soundtracks of all time plays do you remember the song, Ross? Oh, no, I do not. I may have blacked it out. It, it goes into yakety yak. <laughs> 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 like, so it's like, I don't know what message he wants to play in this, but like, <laughs> I can't. Oh there is no rhyme or reason to any of this. Is he just saying that, like, this is all just baloney? I don't know. But, like, it is a baffling movie. It's a baffling movie. I know. another movie to talk about. We still, I know. So, So quickly, we're going to do this. What was I seeing? Wait, 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 wait. You need to guess the letterbox. Oh, the letterbox. The average average letterbox rating for this movie. Oh, these these good people of letterbox, what are they doing to us? Um, I'm going to say that this is, like, a 2.8. Uh, you are too low. It is a 3.2, which is 3.2. baffling to me. Yes. Um, yes. So this weekend, it comes out the weekend of September 24th. It c- comes out 9th that weekend. It doesn't make a lot of money. It makes about, you know, I think it was like $4 million something dollars mm-hmm. in general, in total in its run. Yeah, like about $4.5 million total. Other notable uh, movies that come out that weekend, Double Jeopardy comes out that weekend, Jacob the Liar, and Simon Says, uh, also in the top 10 that uh, week. I have was... no idea what Simon Says is. Jacob the Liar is like the Robin Williams Holocaust movie, isn't it, or something? Uh, correct. Yes, correct. okay. Yeah, I never saw that. 
Yes, uh, double, double jeopardy. jeopardy. I might have seen. That seems like the sort of legal legal thriller I might have checked out. You're telling me that you don't understand, uh, you don't remember the movie Simon Says, which the description on Box Office Mojo is: Basketball superstar Dennis Rodman stars as a hip Interpol agent attempting to defeat the deadly plans of a crazed arms dealer. You mean you didn't rush to see this movie when it came out in 1999? No, no, but like this sounds intriguing, Ross. Why aren't we? Why aren't we covering this movie? I don't think it's an intentional comment. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Blue Streak um, also was in second that week, and Runaway Bride is still holding on in tenth. That week hold on. Is Simon says a movie? <laughs> is this a documentary? Because, like, you know, now that he's become our unofficial ambassador to North Korea, maybe, maybe this is just hinting towards something with with Dennis Rodman. Oh, get, get him on Mumford's couch. I want to see Mumford. that scene, Ross. Mumford and Dennis Rodman. Oh God, oh, <laughs> dear okay. Lord. So yes, that that's what happens that weekend at the box office uh, for Mumford. Let's move on to spoiler alert: a much better movie. Yes, with uh, with Mystery Alaska. Uh, what's this about, Ross? So Mystery Alaska is a small town obsessed with hockey. They have a tradition that every Saturday, 10 players come together, split into two teams, and play a game of hockey on the local pond in front of the entire town. The players are chosen by a committee of local elders, and it is a high honor to be part of this roster. When they are featured in a Sports Illustrated article written by former resident Charles Danner, they gain some national attention. Charles is able to parlay this attention to get the NHL to agree to send the New York Rangers to play mystery in an exhibition game in Mystery Alaska. The town is hesitant at first, but decides to take up the challenge. The team itself is made up of a ragtag group of locals. To coach the team initially, the committee asks recently demoted player and current sheriff of the town, John Beebe. Beebe himself is having a difficult time dealing with the demotion, and he is jealous that his wife Donna seems to be enjoying having her high school boyfriend Charles back in town. Further complications occur, questioning whether some of its players will be available for the game, or if the game itself will even go on. In the, game, in the end, the game occurs, and Mystery puts up a valiant effort against the Rangers. However, the team loses by one goal when their shot at the last second hits the crossbar. In the end, they gain the respect of the Rangers, who signed two of Mystery's top players to minor league deals. So, Trip, did this movie inspire you, or did it hit off the post? Ross, this is exactly what I want a small town movie to be. Like, this is just an ensemble of these weird, quirky characters played by a lot of actors who I love, who don't always get a lot of focus on them. And it just, it, lets us ride through town and realize the ridiculous ways that a small town is set up, the weird sort of government system and who has the power and who doesn't. There are all sorts of secrets lying in the town that may or may not become important. Um, but most importantly, everyone in this town is just lovable and wonderful. This is a movie I just wanted to sit with more because this, I found this just delightful. I, I agree. I think there's stuff about this. First off, I, I think a key part to any of these kind of small town movies is there has to be a reason why we're making this movie about a small town, right? Mm -hmm. There's got to be something interesting or fascinating or, you know, there's something here to this. And I think you base it really on this tradition about the hockey. Yeah. There is something really cool that the locker room is up on this like kind of small hill and in mm. order for the players to get down they skate like in this kind of like serpentine path yeah. down to the pond. That is 
awesome. It mm-hmm. looks cool. And the whole idea of this tradition, these elders electing, you know, these this kind of roster of people and that the roster is really what you do is you just get elected to the roster, right? Mm-hmm. Because the teams change every week, it doesn't matter. It's yeah. really just to watch this game. I think there's something to that that is very, you know, fascinating and cool and interesting. You know, the way that this small town is set up, it works. And I agree with you. There's a lot of really fun and interesting people here. And this movie is also, while a fun and inspiring sports movie, also has, I think, one foot in this idea of examining living in this small town where you don't leave. A lot of these people have grown up there. Mm -hmm. You kind of stay here and what that means. Mm -hmm. I think this film, I don't know if it always succeeds in doing that as well as it would like, but it's, it's doing it at least enough that's fascinating to me. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And it, it the movie is written by David E. Kelly, is, is one of the two writers of it. I mean, I should just say I love David E. Kelly. I think he is a wonderful television creator. This feels so much in his wheelhouse of stuff. Like, um, he was the creator of Picket Fences, a phenomenal TV show. This feels very Picket Fences. It feels just as lived in as that town. It's co-written by Sean O'Byrne, who has only written a couple movies, uh, but was also a writer on Picket Fences. Uh, is only credited with one episode, but it's one of the best episodes of that show also. And so this almost feels like sort of like a well-developed TV show community, right? Where you have this sort of band of town elder. If you tell me there's town elders, I am in, Ross. Like, that's the sort of small town that I love, <laughs> right? This Gilmore Girls, Picket Fences, Northern Exposure type setup. And um, it just, it feels so lived in and so wonderful. And like Mumford, it does not look down at this town at all, right? That you sort of love everyone who is involved in this. There's also something just more three-dimensional about every person in this movie, that every person in this town has a story and the film is interested in their story and it's interested in giving them some sort of depth, even if they're not the focus of everything. I'm intrigued to know what you think about two specific performances in this movie. Two people who okay. we don't normally see in these types of movies. Well, I guess that's not necessarily true, but interesting choices, I would say, for this movie. First, you have Russell Crowe, who is the, the lead of this movie, who at mm-hmm. this point is, you know, this is the same year he does The Insider, right? Yeah. And gets nominated for Best Actor at the Oscars. It is the year before he will do Gladiator, right? Mm-hmm. And at this point, is probably best known for doing stuff like L.A. Confidential, Romper Stomper, The Quick and the Dead, Virtuosity. This mm-hmm. is not a person that you would have normally thought to be an inspirational sports movie. That no, is and, it's, and it's sort of in that, like, in 1999, we all sort of know who Russell Crowe is. He's sort of an up-and-coming actor. It's not, Gladiator is what turns him into yes. like, a A-list movie star Russell Crowe, where you go see a movie for Russell Crowe. Absolutely. And so there is something interesting about putting him. You can see Hollywood definitely trying to turn him into a leading man. I think he's really good in in this movie. Um, and part of it is because he's the unquirkiest of the characters, right? They sort of let him be, you know, the the straight man and sort of everyone around him be a little quirkier, a little wackier, right? He's the one who's constantly butting heads with everyone else. And I think he's really charming and likable. 
Russell Crowe has movie star energy, you know, spoiler yeah. alert, guys. And um, this this is, it's a different side of him, but I really loved him in this movie. Just to be clear, I think Russell Crowe could do comedy, see the nice guys. In fact, just, just see the nice guys. It's a great movie. He can do comedy. This, I think, works, and I agree with you for this. I The only reason I highlighted it in the sense of I do think it's an interesting choice, especially at this yeah. point in his career. Mm-hmm. He has to carry with him a lot of this kind of emotional stuff i mentioned it a bit in the in the rundown there is this whole thing of him trying to come to grips with his aging and Mm -hmm. not being necessarily a part of this team as a player as much anymore and that's also leading to this strife that he's having with his wife which could go south if it's not given to a really talented actor like russell crowe that is where also the movie really sold me because he and mary mccormick have this amazing relationship and she is so good in this movie ross she is yes she is always wonderful i love mary mccormick um of course we are a couple years away from her joining the cast of the west wing (laughs) there is this such love between the two of them when hank azaria gets into town we realize she and hank azaria were high school sweethearts he is still pining madly in love with her right he's the new york hotshot as she says at the end of the movie she did not choose to stay in mystery alaska she chose russell crowe right she chose this is who i want to be with and that means staying here and it is such a testament to the movie that at no point do you ever get the idea that she is actually going to leave her family and run off with Hank Azaria? And at no point in this movie do you believe, are you told that she made the wrong choice by staying in a small town? What drives me nuts about so many of these movies is that it ends up being your life is better if you go to the big city than if you stay in the small town. And this movie believes, and at the end, there are some people who get to leave Mystery Alaska, right? Two of these players are recruited by the NHL and they're going to go and play minor league and you're excited for them. But the movie is on the side of, look, if you stay in the small town and you make your life here, you are making a wonderful life for yourself. And that's that message of the movie and that relationship between Russell Crowe and Mary McCormick is what really kept me glued to this movie. Well, because I think Russell Crowe is the one who needs to change right she mm-hmm. is fine and her big speech which i think if if done poorly could be seen to go in bad ways right when they're having yeah. this fight where she basically also says like kind of says to him look you know i knew that you're jealous and at times i was kind of flattered by it and found it mm-hmm. you know like oh isn't this cute but now it's becoming insulting right yeah. because now mm-hmm. you're actually thinking that i'm going to do something and nothing is now you're getting ridiculous and now yeah. it shows that you don't trust me but her also whole thing which i think is what i talked about earlier this idea of living in this small town she talks about also being a woman in this small town that's mm-hmm hockey obsessed that is small it is not enjoyable like she's not necessarily Mm -hmm. stayed here you know as you said right she didn't stay here because she liked mystery alaska she stayed here for him Mm -hmm. and has built this life that she is very happy with she she loves her husband she loves the family she loves her life but it's also like it's not necessarily easy living in this town Mm -hmm. um and i think that's something that's very interesting again i don't know if the movie fully does enough to fully explore that but it's interesting that it's still 
kind of even sprinkling that in there. Yeah. You said you had two performers you wanted me to talk about, and I'm assuming my love for Mary McCormack was not one of them. So. No, no. Um, what's uh, what's the great. other? Russell Crowe and... The other one, and we didn't talk about this in the rundown, but eventually John Beebe is not the person who coaches the team in the big game. Mm-hmm. It is the local judge whose son also plays on the team and whose daughter is dating one of the hotshot new players. Uh, that is none other than Burt Reynolds, mm-hmm. who Burt Reynolds' 90s obviously is a very interesting time. Burt Reynolds, one of the biggest movie stars on the planet at one point in this, you know, mm-hmm. this by the 90s is definitely kind of having some very interesting moments, right? He's done The Player and uh, Citizen Ruth, and obviously the big thing, 1997, he does Boogie Nights, but he's also doing cop and a half he's doing strip tease he's doing a bunch of like tv movies like but you're forgetting so he starts the 90s though transitioning from movie star to tv star yes he's on evening shade for four or five seasons which is a huge show um and he wins i want to say an emmy for it and a golden globe and like he sort of becomes he sort of transitions in there, right? That like, I can carry a TV show. I can carry a very successful sitcom here. Feels similar to Mystery Alaska, right? Where he was like professional football player who had to go back and coach a small town football high school team. And so he becomes the national conscious something different, right? And then he sort of parlays that into, well, I'm going to start being a supporting actor in a lot of these movies, right? And Sorry, he's really funny in striptease. He's really funny in Citizen Youth. Uh, oh no, Citizen, Citizen Ruth. Ruth I included yes. in more of the like, you know. Yeah, so it's it's definitely a transition period for him. But yeah, he's and I think he's really good in this movie. His character doesn't really make sense. For most of the movie, his character is against all of this, even though he's supposed to be the best hockey mind in the town, right? And it never explains to us why he doesn't want this to happen. He just seems grumpy throughout. Um, And I think the movie also does a really smart thing with him that it knows, look, he is the biggest movie star in this movie, that he does not fit in with sort of the rest of the cast. So we're going to let him be different. He is going to walk around in his black fedora and his black trench coat the whole time. He's going to stick out. Everyone treats him like he's from a different stratosphere anyways. At the end, he coaches the team in like a full three-piece suit and black fedora. Like he never seems to fit into this town, which I think is really smart. And I think he's fu- he's he's good in this. I think that was the only problem I had. With Burt Reynolds. I actually think Burt Reynolds, if Burt Reynolds is the coach of your inspirational sports movie, I think that's great. He clearly, he's so good when he's in the element of coaching and doing that stuff. He feels right in there. Here's the problem. I don't buy for one second that Burt Reynolds is from Mystery Alaska. No. I don't. Burt Reynolds is, is L.A. to me. And he is, and I say this actually as a compliment, because I think Burt Reynolds is and I should say was, he passed away several years ago, was such a dynamic presence on film. He is he is absolutely a person who, when he was put into movies, he comes in and you immediately are like, that guy. Like, I need mm-hmm. to know what that guy's doing. It's why he's so good in Boogie Nights. It's why he's so good in so many other things. And he also was really an athlete. He mm-hmm. was an athlete. He played, I believe, uh, football at Florida State, uh, in college and was pretty good. So mm-hmm. he's he's a guy who you believe 
when he starts, you know, saying all those hockey stuff and everything, you believe him. 10,000 percent. This Mm -hmm. guy knew hockey. He knew what was going on. You know, I I think to some extent that's what makes it a a big deal. And so those are just the two people. That's why I wanted to to hear your things on it. They're the two people that kind of stick out in this movie because they are interesting choices to put in a small inspirational movie that takes place in Alaska. Yeah. See, I never really thought much of any of that, that I always sort of believed that he was, he's definitely the guy in town who has gone away to college, right? Like he has gone away to learn all of this. He comes back. He has a very different demeanor than everyone else, right? Because he's richer than probably most people in the town. He has this sort of authority. I think he puts on this air of, I want to be the big man in town. I also wonder if this is just a generational thing too, Ross, because I, you tell me Burt Reynolds, the first thing I think of is Evening Shade, because that's the first time I ever really became aware of him, because I was, what, 8, 10, and it was one of the most popular family sitcoms on TV, and we watched it every week. And so I sort of think of him as this, like, sort of, you know, comedic character in this situation, and this feels very similar to that. And so maybe if I'm, you're just that much younger, my guess is you probably never even watched Evening Shade. No, right? Or if you're a little bit older than me and you think of him as Smokey and the Bandit, like maybe you have this different interpretation. But to me, it's like, oh yeah, this is Burt Reynolds doing his Burt Reynolds thing right A here. movie my grandfather what? Loves, loves, what? loves. He loves Smokey and the Bandit. Oh yeah. Um, so, he's a huge Smokey. Yeah, it's yeah. also because he's a huge Jackie Gleason fan. So Jackie okay. Gleason, obviously a big part of Smokey and the Bandit. Um, yes. But we will talk maybe a little more Burt Reynolds later on in this episode. But Trip, we, we've kind of talked about numerous people in this movie, this kind of cl- yeah. eclectic uh, group who is the supporting turn that you wanted to highlight kevin durand is one of the players on this team he's the one who they call tree yes. and he is sort of like the tallest biggest burliest of the guys again it's one of those very stereotypical like oh here's the big dumb guy who they just get to push people around and of course he gets the whole subplot of once they realize they're playing a real nhl team and they all have to get physical right that they're going to rely on him to you know start the fights and break people's noses but he brings this real just charm and warmth to this part he's an actor who is known i feel a lot for sort of playing like second or third string bad guys. There's a real just loveliness and charm to him in this movie that he gets a little more focus than some of the other players do maybe. And I was always happy to see him on screen and sort of a testament to how this movie takes the cliches of a small town, um, but makes them a little more three-dimensional, a little more complex. So I'm going to throw out Kevin Durand out there. I loved him. I loved him in this movie. I think he's yes. very fun. Absolutely. It's very interesting. We didn't talk about this, by the way, because I did look this up. Uh, the Choice of the Rangers is a very interesting one to put in this movie. It is the year after Wayne Gretzky has retired. This is the first, because this comes out in the end of October, right? So this is the 99-2000 okay. Rangers. Wayne Gretzky, who has played the last three seasons of his career with the Rangers, has just retired at the end of the 98-99 season. Mark Messier, who's a big player for them, he's actually in Vancouver at this point. He's in this kind of like three years in Vancouver, and then he comes back the following season to the Rangers. They have Brian mm-hmm. Leach. They have Mike Richter. 
the Rangers in this movie are essentially just like this eclectic, like we don't even like, I don't, I'm a Rangers fan actually myself. It's such a very fascinating way to depict the Rangers. I don't really Mm -hmm. know. Uh, But having Kevin Durant, you know, be this kind of like physical presence with them is, is really fun. And I agree with you. I really liked his performance in this. Um, I was going to possibly choose somebody who you're going to talk about, I think, in a little bit, because I do think he's also very funny in this movie for the small mm-hmm. part that he has. But I decided to go with Maury Chaikin, who is a great oh, character he is actor. so great in this. And he is – he plays um, one of the people who is uh, one of the town elders, mm-hmm. but his day job seems to be defense attorney, mm-hmm. but – there is a real question as to how good of an attorney he actually is. We see him in these courtroom scenes. He defends one of their top scorer, actually. The top scorer mm-hmm. on the team is arrested because he accidentally shoots a representative of Price World, who we will, again, we'll talk about this in a little bit mm-hmm. later. I think it will come up again. But he's defending him in this, you know, <laughs> scorer scene. And every time, like, he has to do an objection, but he doesn't know any of the objections. So he just mm-hmm. kind of says, like, I don't think you can do that. Like, this is, he's clearly this small town lawyer who, uh, unfortunately, uh, passes away during the movie, right? Mm -hmm. Not Maury Chaikin, the actor, the character, just to be clear. (laughs) Um, He, uh, during a, literally in a courtroom as he's defending the town, when there's a possibility that the game isn't going to happen, that the Mm -hmm. NHL Players Union is seeking an injunction to prevent the game. He is a heart in this movie because he's a great kind of small town figure. And his death becomes such an emotional core. And it's what pushes Burt Reynolds in the end to eventually mm-hmm. kind of take the job of coaching. Is yeah. you know, he is he is the local judge. He obviously deals with Maury Chaikin a lot. And I think his death, while they may not always be on the same side or anything, there's a love, I think, for them and this respect for each other. That yeah, they have. no, he he's he's wonderful. He and everything that I love about Maury Chaikin is everything that I couldn't stand about Martin Short in Mumford, right? <laughs> because this is really what a small town lawyer would be like, right? That it's not, and he brings such war and such heart. And you're exactly right. If you don't love him, you're not going to catch on to the second half of this movie. Um, yeah. sort of after after he sadly sadly dies. So yeah, Maury Chaikin, we should add, has also passed away, but a great a great character actor. Yes. Um, so yeah, passed away in 2010. So a great character actor, great yes. character mm-hmm. actor, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so Trip, yes. what do you find to be though the scene that you want to highlight as your funniest moment? Okay, so um, one of Ross's national treasures pops up in this movie, Michael McKean, for yes! a couple scenes. Um, so he great. plays again. There's sort of a subplot of Price World, which is supposed to be like a Walmart type. Uh, company is thinking about moving in and building a, a store in Mystery, Alaska. And of course, they all know that the moment that that opens, all of their small businesses are going to collapse, right? This is not going to be good. So Michael McKean plays the representative of uh, Price World, who shows up. The first thing we see of him, he has come into one of the local shops to get something, and they figure out that he is from Price World, and one of the football or one of the hockey players uh, shoots him. Well, doesn't shoot him, wants to scare him away, so just fires the gun randomly, but it bounces off a wheelbarrow and hits Michael McKean in the leg. And so the first thing we see of him is Russell Crowe, who's also the town sheriff. I don't know if we mentioned that or not. Um, yeah. shows up to see what's going on, and Michael McKean is laying there. They're bandaging up his leg, and it is just a line of 
30 expletive words all put together. And Michael McKean is condescending about this small town and vulgar. And it is so hilarious that just he is at a 10 and he is just in full I don't know, Karen mode, right? Of just, I am going to attack all of you people. And he is so funny in that moment. And then he pops up a couple other times and um, he's funny, but it just that first scene is so hysterical of him and Russell Crowe trying to figure everything out and calm down and just, they keep cutting to Michael McKean and he's just going to keep swearing at all of them. So oh, um, yeah. I think that that scene to me was the, the funniest of a lot of this movie is charming. It is not laugh out loud, hysterical, but yes. that was one where like, it really, it really goes for it. I, you know, it's again, I thought about putting Michael McKean for my best supporting turn. Cause he is just so great and everything. And of course, all those comments come back to haunt him at the trial when they go <laughs> in front of the jury. It, didn't you call this small town? Ex-? And you just see the prosecutor just go like, Oh no, like, Oh God. But just, yeah, it, it's, it's absolutely great. To quicken this up, I guess, I will do my funniest and unfunniest moments because they kind of connect to each other, right? So my funniest moment, at some point, which I'll talk about in the unfunniest moment, things that are said in the locker room are revealed to people outside of the locker room, which causes one of their players, Skank, to get hit over the head with a shovel, as he so rightfully deserves. Yes. Um, First off, there is a character, and his nickname is Skank. Like, let's just, because he sleeps with as many people in town as he can. Absolutely. And that obviously comes out, but there is a code in this of this team that what gets said in the locker room stays in the locker room. That's the mm-hmm. rules. That's it. And we find out that one of the players kind of told, I think, his girlfriend or the girl he's with what Skank had said about this woman that he had slept with and it had gotten back to her and so they have determined that he must face the punishment which is skating around this pond in only a jock strap and eventually sliding across the the ice essentially crotch first into a massive snowbank that is on the side of it and it's mm-hmm. just the visual thing of this it's like the kind of inspirational sports like silly sports movie of like yeah. No one's getting seriously injured, but this is enough of a, like, I don't yes. ever want to do this, that it's, like, mm. funny and silly, and it, it does work, and it made me laugh. So, yes. it, and as I, I said, wish I wish that they had made Skink do it, and yes. not the guy who is being punished just for telling his girlfriend, um, because Skink is really not the greatest guy. No, which goes to the unfunniest moment, which, as I said, the unfunniest moment I picked is... What he says, which I actually mm-hmm. am kind of surprised you did not pick, because this goes right into stuff that you have obviously very much had mm-hmm. problems with in many of these movies. Uh, Skank, at the beginning of this movie, comes into the locker room having had this sexual conquest with this woman and mm-hmm. really starts insulting her weight and how her weight, you know, impacts all of this you know, uh, tryst that they had. It's really offensive. It is mm. really kind of like yeah. the things that he's saying. And everyone he calls laughing. her a fat walrus. Yeah, it's like, bad. Yeah. By the way, you you also it, it's a, played by a, a lovely actress who I remember from the sitcom uh, Grounded for Life. Who Megan just, Price. Megan yeah. Price, who is great, and by the way, is absolutely right to hit him over the head with a shovel. Um, yes. It just made me like as I was watching this, and that everyone's laughing and they're all seemingly having a you know a good time with this and kind of joining in in this. It really just rubbed me the wrong way. 
believe me, Ross, the moment that happened, I jotted it down as my unfunniest moment. I think I forgave it because the movie is definitely not on Skank's side and because she gets her revenge in that great scene where she knocks him out. Yes. And I feel like the, the more that keeps happening around here with him, he keeps getting sort of punished for this, except at the end where he randomly sleeps with the uh, news anchor from New York at the end. But like, I, I did feel like, while I do not agree, like that scene rubbed me the wrong way. The movie does pay it off well, I think. And I think that he he sort of gets his, his revenge there. Yeah, it's um, another great character actress, Beth Littleford, who is the reporter. Yes, Ooh, yes, I am. And and, let, and let's just talk about, because we haven't really focused on some of this. That guy is played by Ron Eldard, who's a wonderful character actor. Yes, I think he's um, doing a good job. I yeah, think. he is. I think he, he's good in this. Um, you also get in this movie, um, he's having an affair with the mayor's wife, played by Lolita Davidovich, who's really yeah. good. Cole Meany plays the mayor. He's really wonderful in this. You have Judith Ivey. You have Scott Grimes. You have a young Adam Beach popping yeah. up in here you said beth littleford um it's really a wonderful sort of collection of uh character actors in here and i do want to want to highlight a lot of them jerry becker and uh, l scott caldwell both show up in the the trial near the end and they're both or in the middle the union trial yeah um, and they're both really great also so. but i feel like there's a small part that that seems to have rubbed you the wrong way trip yeah, so here's here's my thing for the uh, for the day. My lesson of this: when you make these charming small town movies with all of these great character actors, you don't need to drop a comedian in for two scenes. And so, much like Martin Short, Mike Myers just bugged me in this movie that he shows up in a weird wig, doing a weird accent as Mike Myers tends to do, playing one of the hockey like supposedly a former hockey player who's now like a commentator. While I give him credit for not going full Mike Myers in here, like he is a little more believable in the part than like Martin Short is. He's not doing a shtick. He's not very good. He still rubs me the wrong way. He is all of the other hockey sort of commentators in here are played by real hockey commentators yeah right? bill esposito like, plays himself like yes, real hockey right. player phil esposito yes and 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 someone else and like they all sort of pop up in here so it's all real people doing themselves and then mike myers sort of sticks out and i i don't think you needed him in this movie i'm sure it was a favor i'm sure it was some way to get some more money fine but um just that part sort of bugged me and i was annoyed whenever he was on screen so I had the opposite reaction because I think he felt like a real kind of commentator to me because there is that kind of like you watch enough and it's not just a hockey thing. You watch enough sports commentating, mm -hmm. which I have in my life. Some of the like nonsense, like it, it feels like stock trade thing that he keeps talking about in this. It felt like I was like, yeah, no, I've seen this guy. And I, I think he also did it because he I think he is a, a big hockey fan. I know he goes to a bunch of Rangers games here in the city at points and um i think that's what kind of drew him to doing this i think it was just like kind of a fun thing of like a ah, hockey movie all right i mean and we will get into this many years several years down the road in this if we get this far he makes his own hockey movie which we i i regret will end up having to talk about uh and that will i, I think the unfunniest things in that for the love guru will be high um but... the love guru is a hockey movie oh trip it is oh boy it is um... a hockey movie 
<laughs> Anyways, like that that's fine. Let Mike Myers show up as himself, right? We we get we didn't talk about little Richard shows up in this movie to sing the national anthem. <laughs> it's cold. In a, it's cold. In a really fun in a really funny bit. I really Great. like little Richard. I love little Richard. But like so let Mike Myers actually show up to the game if he's a Rangers fan, right? But I don't think I think you could have gotten just any sort of famous hockey commentator to do that part and it would have felt more authentic and in place with the movie than mike myers in a funny wig would have i will say but i do agree with you in this regard i think when we've seen my i mean look we watched austin powers the spy shag me here this is a more restrained mike myers doing a quote-unquote character it is then basically you know, he has in other ways. I mean, again, he is Canadian. He's from Toronto. I, I do think he is kind of a, a big hockey fan. So I think that's basically what kind of, mm-hmm. and again, he, he was working with Jay Roach. Yeah. I'm sure it was a favor that he came in and did it. And yeah. I'm sure that it got them some publicity or some extra money for the movie. And that's great. Yes. But you know, I, I feel like artistically there are better ways to do that. So, so now talked about this movie a bunch and we obviously like it but it's now time where we talk about how critics and audiences feel about this movie so trip what do you think the average critic rotten tomato score is for mystery alaska I, I i would like to imagine that it's good that like people found this charming so i'm gonna say it's positive i'm gonna give it like a say it's like a 65 percent. let our audience shout out their answers that they think Trip, this is going to sadden you, and it saddened me. Critics not as high on this movie. Uh, they gave it thirty. It's an average of thirty-seven percent on Rotten. Thirty-seven percent. I know this. That's is like half of Mumford. That's. Like, I know this is ridiculous to me. I, but, I agree but with you. You know why that is? It's because this does not have Lawrence Kasdan's name on it, and so they gave because. Mumford is written and directed by a, you know, quote unquote, great. I'm sure it got a pass that this didn't because it's the Austin Powers guy making this movie and it's David E. Kelly from TV. And I think this is one of the hidden gems that we have found in this season so far, Ross. I, I agree. Um, Stephen Holden of the New York Times wrote, But Mystery Alaska, an upbeat meat and potatoes movie that is a striking change in directorial style for Jay Roach, who oversaw the garish Austin Power romps, which I'm sure you agree with their trip, uh, conveys some of the thrill and ferocity of ice hockey while skillfully folding together multiple personal dramas. Okay. Yeah, Um, there we go. Uh, Variety, Robert Kohler did not uh, feel the same way. Uh, He wrote, but overlong story forces picks natural base of hockey fans to wait a long stretch for the puck to drop without top stars to carry the team and burdened with a mysteriously misleading title. Hollywood pictures shouldn't hope for repeat of the male female demo balance and numbers enjoyed by similarly pitched for love of the game. Okay. I, um, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe is watching this post Russell Crowe superstardom a different experience for us, right? Or yeah. is it is it because I think you watch this movie now and you see a lot more stars in here than maybe you did back in 99, but I think he's still wrong. Yes. We, we yep. both agree with that. But the good users of Letterboxd also have a say here. What do you think the good users and fine users of Letterboxd think the average score is for Mystery Alaska? Oh, I hope that they redeem this movie a little bit. Uh, I'm going to say 3.2. 
shout out your answers uh, here, people listening. A trip you nailed it straight on the head. Just Ooh. like Mumford, they gave it, the average score is a 3.2 on Letterboxd. There we go. Well, awesome. It's, you know, to, to answer your question about the critics thing, I also wonder with sports movies, if sometimes what they feel as conventional sports movies, just kind of like, they all just kind of like blend in to people. And I, yeah, I don't, don't think that's right. But, you know, we are also there were a lot of movies a lot like Mystery Alaska coming out in the late 90s. Right. Yeah. That Like um, this was a, a, a big genre at the time. So sure. So maybe there was some fatigue that we don't see. But I just I found this movie charming. Yeah. Um, I found this movie charming besides the sports thing. Like you could have cut the hockey out of this movie and I still would have really loved it. Yeah. Like, it you was, know, it's yeah. It's I nice thought movie. just really wonderful. Fun movie. So we talked about the weekend this opened uh, several times because it opened up the same weekend as Three Kings and Drive Me Crazy. So we're just going to skip this portion because we talked about it on two other episodes. It's it's Elmo and Grouchland weekend, guys. Yes, everybody, yes, go see weekend, The Adventures of keeps, Elmo and Grouchland. Just, just keeps coming back. <laughs> Elmo and Grouchland. What? This is the last time oh, we will man. talk about this, though. I will say, can you imagine, though, a triple feature of going to see this Three Kings and Drive Me Crazy? Like that, that Fascinating. would something like you have to end with Drive Me Crazy because you have to leave your triple feature with that Drive Me Crazy ending. <laughs> ending. So, Trip, uh, you're watching these two movies uh, and you want to pair another movie, a, mm-hmm. a triple feature, if you will, now with Mumford and Mystery Alaska. What what film would you recommend for our listeners? Yeah, so and like I said, I really love a small town movie and I think there's lots of really sort of great ones out there. Um, I went in a little different of a path with small town movies um, and I went with Errol Morris's 1981 documentary Vernon, Florida. I think Errol Morris, one of my favorite filmmakers, a master documentarian. Uh, this is one of his movies that's not as talked about enough, but it really is just him sort of wandering around this city of Vernon, Florida, uh, this sort of quirky small town and interviewing the people in the town and getting their story. And he ended up there because Vernon, Florida, it was originally supposed to be called Nub City because um, Vernon, Florida had this habit of residents who were cutting off their own limbs to get insurance money. And so he went down to sort of uncover, like, why is this happening? But ended up just sort of, hey, this is a sweet town. There are all sorts of quirky characters here. Let's just tell their story. And so it really is just a series of stories. It's sort of small town America at its weirdest and most wonderful. And Errol Morris always brings out the best in everyone he interviews. And so uh, Vernon, Florida, I think it's it's nice and short. It's like 70 some minutes. Uh, No, 55 minutes. I'm sorry. It's really short. It's barely even an hour. Uh, So you can fit it in with a triple feature nicely. But um, yeah, uh, Vernon, Florida. Check it out. Yeah, a a movie I also like. And I'm a huge Errol Morris fan as well. I think he's a great, 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 great documentarian. You can Mm -hmm. find it on Criterion Channel or, you know, if you have AMC Plus or it's on Tubi as well. So yeah, Vernon, Florida, I would definitely agree. I decided to go with a different sports movie. And uh, my favorite, Burt Reynolds possibly movie and it's one of my all-time favorite movies and that is the original not the remake not the remake of the longest yard the longest yard is one of these sports movies some people make inspirational sports movies uh the longest yard is not that the longest yard is mean the longest yard is nasty it is 
a film that is very much in the wake of Watergate. It comes out in 1974. It is very questioning of authority. Burt Reynolds plays this down-and-out former NFL quarterback who had been kicked out of the league essentially for gambling and gets himself in trouble with the law. He gets thrown into prison. The warden, who's played by uh, the great Eddie Arnold, kind of forces him onto Eddie, this- Eddie Albert, not Eddie, Eddie Albert. Albert. Yes, you are correct. Eddie They're Albert. very different people. Very different. Eddie Albert, uh, who is a great actor, Eddie Albert. He plays the warden, kind of forces him to now lead this football team of convicts that he wants to play his prized team of made up of the guards. And it is mean. It is funny, though. It is dark. And it is believable that Burt Reynolds is an, a former NFL quarterback, because as I said, he was an actual college athlete. He played uh, at Florida State. And it is a movie that I find hilarious and is really interesting. Uh, I recommend people check out the original one. Do not see the the remake, which we will eventually have to do if we get farther along, along down on this podcast. So we will be forced to do it. I have seen it. I saw it in a theater. Was very deeply saddened by it. The original is the way to go and is a great 70s sports movie. Highly recommend it to people. Guess what, Ross? I've never seen it. So, See it. It's great. Added added it to the watch list. We're we are recording this on a Sunday. We're recording this, you know, to pull, peel back the curtain. It is championship weekend here in the NFL. Yes. Uh go watch a great uh football movie if you are looking forward to that. Um but Trip, you're now staring at those gray stars. You're turning mm-hmm. them green on letterbox. What is your final ratings for Mumford and for Mystery Alaska? Mumford is two stars. Mystery Alaska is four stars. Uh, it is everything I want in a small town film. It's charming and wonderful. And uh, yes, please go check out Mystery Alaska. And um, unless you want to, <laughs> unless you want to see a train wreck in front of your eyes, just avoid Mumford. Because yeah, uh, I think there's something fascinating about Mumford, but not in a way I can really. <laughs> yeah, I gotta um, say, like I, I agree with you on Mumford. I gave it two stars as well. I, mm-hmm. We have done much worse movies on this on this thing on this yeah. podcast, but again. I think it is like a fascinating movie in the sense of like, it is insane. If you haven't gotten that, we both find this movie absolutely insane. So if you are intrigued by that, I would say, sure, watch it. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. think it's like an atrocious, unwatchable movie, but it is insane. I went three and a half for Mystery Alaska. I I just find it just a little bit less than you, but I I agree. I, I do like this movie. I think it's a hidden gem. It didn't do well at the box office. It I, I think people should seek it out. I highly recommend it. Yeah, definitely. Mystery Alaska is one you should watch. There we go. Well, great. Uh, what about next week, Ross? Are we sticking in a small town next week? Are we? We're going a little different. We're probably going more the Mike Myers route, not because it's a Mike Myers movie, but because we are doing an SNL movie. It's our first SNL movie that we have done, like an actual movie based on an SNL sketch, and that is Ooh. Superstar. It is available to stream right now at the time of this recording on Paramount Plus, or you could rent it on Amazon, Apple TV, or YouTube, or you could check your local library and see if it's available on DVD, because we here at A Trip Through Comedy support physical media and local libraries. Do you remember anything about Mary Catherine Gallagher, about that sketch on SNL, or this movie? I I was a religious snl watcher all through the 90s you know that a lot of that is my era i 
never liked this sketch when it was on <laughs> SNL. I, I, I'm sorry. I always found it a little creepy. Like the spelling your armpits thing just really creeped me out and I never found it funny. Um, even though, you know, we would all, of course, do the pose and go superstar um, all the time. And so I never saw this because if I didn't like it as a sketch, I can't imagine it being a full-length movie. And so, um, yeah, I am entering this with trepidation. Well, Trip, luckily this is an 81-minute movie. So, oh. uh, you know, still, we will talk- Still eight times longer than the average <laughs> SNL sketch, Ross. And so... <laughs> That is true. That is true. Yeah. Um, but we will get to talk about the history of SNL movies and where they were at that time. And uh, yeah, well, but until then, but until then, Trip, where can people find you on the interwebs? And they can find me all over the social media, X and Blue Sky and Letterboxd, all at TripBurton13. And if you go to our Letterboxd, you can also find all sorts of information about the show, movies we've recommended, movies we've covered, uh, links to all of that. So uh, check it out. Yeah, check out Trip's Letterbox for all of that. You can find me at R. Bratton on the website formerly known as Twitter and Letterboxd and Blue Sky and Threads. Uh, you can find me at all those places at R. Bratton. The show is all over uh, Twitter and Blue Sky and Instagram at ATTC Pod. You can also email us with your, you know, longer thoughts about small town movies at a trip through comedy at gmail.com. Remember, Trip has two P's. We accept all of your uh, digestive thoughts on Mumford. If you have a very long form <laughs> thoughts on that movie, please, please send it to us. In, in the words of Fraser Crane, we're listening. If you, if, if you have built your own sex robots, though, we do not need to see uh, pictures or evidence of those. No, so you can hold or, or, detailed, or detailed fantasy starring Holt McElhaney. <laughs> Although we do like Holt McElhaney as an actor. We do, we do. But we uh, the theme to, music Your Holt is... McElhaney fan fiction can yeah. stay in your privacy of your own home. <laughs> Yo, good for you. Um, our theme music is So Alive, instrumental by John Worthy Music. You can find his work on the Free Music Archive or wherever you listen to music. And as always, we will see you farther along down the road. Steve, I can't believe you're leaving. We haven't even had sex.